0: This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg and welcome to episode 36 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, the Small Business Institute expects a major opening up of the economy pretty soon. Discovery Insure is to rebate 25% of its members' April premiums. We ask, has coronavirus killed the Open Plan office? Donald Trump's hydrochloroquine endorsement gets another fan, Elon Musk. Top political risk consultancy tells us multinationals are fretting about South Africa's dimmed economic prospects. And we'll take a closer look at Moderna, the company whose positive COVID-19 vaccine tests sent the price of U.S. stocks and oil soaring on Monday. Inside COVID-19, Trumpers News. Well, first in the COVID-19 headlines today, the South African government's modelling team has projected that confirmed coronavirus infections in the country will reach more than a million before they peak in August, while they have also stated that mortalities could reach 45,000. Health Minister Zweli Kese said at the same briefing, which was held on Monday, that the number of new infections would have to slow before the country would be able to lift the nationwide lockdown. This statement was badly received in the business community, including at the Small Business Institute, whose members employ more than 3.9 million people. Chief Executive of the SBI, John Glodlow, says he prefers to listen to what Cyril Ramaphosa has to say, and that he believes the President has heard the pleas from small businesses, And he expects major reopening of the economy to be announced before the end of the month, because, quote, we just need to be treated like adults, unquote. The full interview with Ludlu is coming up in this episode. South African companies are adapting to the new normal, with a number now hosting shareholder meetings online. Following in the wake of Old Mutual's announcement that it will hold its 175th annual general meeting remotely, comes news that RCL Foods will do the same for it on May the 26th and also Capitec on May the 29th. In the public sector, the city of Johannesburg has started reopening its customer service centers with the first of eight outlets in Santon starting again this week after a deep cleaning and disinfecting process. This follows a directive from central government That cities should resume revenue generating services. Personal protective equipment, including hand wash soaps, sanitizers, gloves, and thermometers, are being supplied to Joburg's 30% of staff who have returned to work in these service centers. More on South African born entrepreneur Elon Musk, who won his face off with California's Alameda County after reopening his Tesla factory despite regulations saying that was illegal. After U.S. President Donald Trump tweeted his support of Musk's position, the county granted official permission for Tesla to restart production at the beginning of the week. Tesla's factory in Shanghai is also back to full production after a relatively short shutdown there, one that began in February. Another high-profile U.S. group, Apple Inc., will be applying social distancing, temperature tests and mandatory wearing of masks as it reopens its retail stores around the world. Apple says it will supply face masks if customers arrive without having them and it will also conduct the temperature checks at the door. Close to 100 Apple stores have already reopened with another 25 in the United States due to get back to business this week. In the UK, the loss of taste and smell has now been officially flagged as an early warning signal of COVID-19 infection. New guidance from the British government recommends self-isolation should either of these symptoms occur, adding to a previous warning on fever and a continuous dry cough. The country is also ramping up its testing with the British health minister announcing anyone over five years old and showing coronavirus symptoms is now eligible for a test. Also from the UK, hopes are fading that an Oxford University developed vaccine currently undergoing human trials would be one of the world's first to protect us against the virus. A trial in Rhesus Macau monkeys did not stop the animals from catching or spreading COVID-19. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. John Glutlu is the chief executive of the Small Business Institute. How many companies do you guys represent?
1: We represent over 100 chambers of commerce small businesses, as well as uh, informal businesses in the township and village economies. We are not directly representing businesses, we are representing Chambers of Commerce. So, for example, take one in KZN, that is uh, Devon Chamber of Commerce has got 8,000 members, the Township Economic Enterprise Alliance represents 34,000 people. So we're quite um, a big organization.
0: But only for small business?
1: Only for small business. So if you remember our trajectory, Alec, we used to be called um, the African San Handels Institute up until three years ago. Three years ago, we took two decisions. The first one was to change the name. The second one was to niche ourselves so that we actually represent the small business uh, segment of the economy, not represent all businesses in South Africa. So there are other organizations that represent businesses regardless of their size. We also respect other organizations that represent a specific race group. In South Africa, but we don't represent races. We represent a small business segment of the economy, formal and increasingly informal uh, sector economy as well.
0: Do you have any idea how many people your members would employ? That's very
1: hard. In fact, it's an exercise that we're currently doing now. But if you do take the small business segment in the economy, by that, what I mean is the formally registered businesses, SMEs. So it's 3.9 million uh, people. But Alec, let's not forget what has happened in the economy. Before COVID, there was the technical recession, which I think has migrated into a formal recession and we must be entering some kind of a depression by now. There was obviously uh, load shedding. And our members are not nimble enough uh, to deal with things like load shedding. They can't get themselves off the grid. There's now obviously the multiple credit downgrade which has happened, and two other things we found in a study that we did that our, a small business owner typically spent as much as nine days a month just complying with regulation policies, whether it's to change your your bank account in a formal SARS branch or you are complying with bylaws. That's quite a lot of money. It's up to 10% of turnover in certain instances. And then, of course, there was the other problem, which we've been trying to lobby government, big business, and state-owned enterprises, which is late payments. We found that in certain instances, in worst-case scenarios, businesses are paid as late as 101 days. But that's not worse. At least they get paid in the private sector. In government sector, they, they don't get paid sometimes. I'll give you a, a real example about myself. I was consulting for one of the airlines, state-owned airlines. And after fighting with them, uh, to and froing, submitting all the documents. And by the way, I was a registered supplier. I had complied. I had been paid for about two years. And we then had this dispute. I took them to court and I spent months with lawyers. They are lawyers as well. It was only two days before the court case that I got paid. And of course, I had to share my money now with the lawyers because they take 20 percent of of the money. So before COVID arrived, it was as bad as that for small businesses in South Africa. And COVID arrived. Where are we now? I think we are in a worse position because If you take other jurisdictions like the UK, like the US, where they have stats about big business and the small business segment of the economy, they know how many people have filed for unemployment in the past two, three months of, of COVID. We don't know. And I suspect it's the reason why the money has taken so long to flow into the required people, in other words, the small businesses in South Africa, because we just don't have these facts.
0: You represent 3.9 million people. Let's just use that as the, as the baseline. It's probably much bigger than that, but we'll just use that as the number. Does government consult with you at all? We know it consults a lot with big business.
1: Things have improved quite a lot. Uh, in the last week, uh, two things have happened. As SBI, we're setting up the SME task team within BUSA, and we will lead that. We will now have a voice in all the consultative forums uh, with with business. Our chairman, Sipong Kosi, has been invited to participate in another forum which predates COVID. That forum was all the affiliates, the big affiliates of BUSA, had gotten together through their leaders to just talk about how to restructure the economy. So we have a voice there as well. And then last week, we had a meeting with the Ministry of Small Business Development. So the environment has slightly changed for us and I think for business in South Africa. We do have a direct voice through BUSA, which listens to us as members.
0: You also have a direct voice through Open Letters and your open letter that you wrote to the president has gone viral. I've had a number of people sending it to me to say, now here's a guy who knows what he's talking about. What are you asking government to do for millions of people you represent?
1: Despite what I've just said now, that we do have a voice, the voice has only started being heard in the last few days when we formalized the the engagement with, with government. Where did the letter come from? It came from two places. The first one is, government told us when the president made the announcement about moving us from stage five to stage four we were always made to understand that stage four is a transitional stage. It is unlike stage five, which was locked in a time period. We were given a month first and it was, it was extended by another two weeks and we moved there to stage four. Now, our members were now in a limbo. What we also realized was that when we moved from from stage five as a country to stage four, something else happened. Small businesses were left behind. So because government took a sector approach, so let's take mining. Mining has got both big business and small businesses, but the small businesses did not return to work, So they were getting frustrated. So we had a lot of our members uh, screaming and shouting and begging us to say, could we please just move to this stage four in a real sense of stage four, where we take a risk-adjusted approach. In other words, we look at all those activities that lend themselves uh, to high risk and we don't reopen them. There are some provinces, for example, uh, let's just take one. In Central Karoo, up until this week, they did not have a single infection. They did not have a single uh, fatality as a result of COVID. Now, according to the risk-adjusted approach, that portion of the Western Cape should have been able to move to stage three instead of being locked down to stage uh, four, even though the risk was so low there. And then the other thing that we're asking government to do was, could you please look sensibly at what businesses lend themselves to safer practices? Small businesses, uh, by their very nature, are able and nimble to do some of the things to apply the health protocols that are required. They can sanitize, they can communicate, train their employees, and of course they still are within the amount of social gatherings, which is 50 people. So we said to government, please let's take this to its logical conclusion. Let us apply the risk-adjusted approach. The risk-adjusted approach says, uh, let's look at the activities that are high risk and then move with those that are low risk. And we thought our members, not only our members, even the informal sector economy, they normally employ about uh, two or three people at most. They should actually be allowed to, to move on and start operating. Otherwise, we're risking a catastrophe in this country.
0: You also say in your letter, you refer to your members, who are still standing. What did you mean by that? We do know from
1: an doctoral point of view that there are businesses that have shut down, shut down forever, especially restaurants, especially the leisure industry, the hotel industry. Those jobs are not coming back. Now, knowing what we know, which is the fact that the small business segment of the economy is by and large undocumented in the country. So we feared the worst that during COVID, as COVID is running its uh, course in the economy, there may not be too many businesses to save, especially because of what we've seen as well, the frustration around accessing uh, the economic support measures that have been laid out by government and the the private sector, like the Oppenheimers and the Rupert families. So we were very nervous that what's happening in the economy is quite dire than what we hear from our members who are frustrated and are still wanting to contribute. Every day, for example, one of our chambers wakes up every day. They band together to go and feed people in the nearest townships. Thank God they can still do that. But are they going back to their businesses? The longer you keep the lockdown, the higher the chances are that they will not be reopening those stores anymore.
0: We had the news today from the Minister of Health that until infections fall, the lockdown will continue. That does suggest that it could be with us for quite some months.
1: We we prefer to listen to the the, the president. The president has said uh, to us, he's he's hearing us. And I'm not saying the Minister of Health is not telling the truth uh, right now. But certain provinces, certain portions, for example, the metros, we know know the metros are the high-risk areas and they're the epicenters of this disease. So it's completely nonsensical to say they can reopen willy-nilly. Otherwise, we'll be taking our people's lives for granted. We do expect, though, that by the end of the month, at the very latest, there would be an announcement that reopens huge swaths of the economy, and that the reopening this time around, it is more nuanced It is not just based on a mechanical sector approach. You'd also take start treating people with respect, start treating people as uh, adults. What do adults do? Adults do recognize that with rights come responsibilities. So if I'm reopening my business tomorrow, it is up to me to ensure that my, my business is ready to receive workers my workers have tested before they return to work because I don't know where they've been. They can't just return and my business is not ready and I don't know that uh, they've been infected over the last one month of lockdown or not. So I carry a lot of responsibility as well as business. Please, let's just appreciate that we are adults. All of us are adults here. We have rights and we have responsibilities as well. I don't think really businesses are there to kill people. I think businesses are there to save livelihoods and more importantly, they are there to save lives as well. Inside COVID-19 from Biz
2: News.
0: Anton Ossip is the chief executive of Discovery Insure. Anton, we haven't been driving our cars, so there presumably would have been a lot less accidents, but the beauty of your business is that you can quantify all of this. Let's, let's start maybe with fuel consumption. Have you seen that members have been filling up their cars less?
3: Yes, absolutely. We've seen lower mileage coming through in terms of the telematics data that we collect, and we've seen it come through as well in terms of lower fuel consumption, lower fuel spend on our cashback benefits. What we did is we treated clients um, based on their average fuel spend as opposed to their current fuel spend.
0: So can you quantify
3: it? I haven't got the numbers Um, offhand. It was a vast drop in the amount of fuel spend because it it depends on what kind of dates you look at, etc. But a significant drop, you know, at its peak when when the lockdown first started, people were very observant to the lockdown and it dropped down immediately. There was like a 70 percent reduction in, in mileage or somewhere around there. And then gradually it started lifting up again and as different industries were allowed to trade and more and more people were essential services workers. Um, So you started seeing, you know, daily an increase in mileage coming through. But initially that, you know, March the 27th, there was a, a sharp drop in the amount of, of miles completed. How many vehicles do you track? So we have 243,000 vehicles that we insure. About 90% of them or so um, belong to Vitality Drive. Um, and a high number of them are, effectively have telematics devices. Some clients, for whatever reason, will choose not to have a telematics device um, or b- would be in the process of putting in a telematics device in at any point in time. But you know, certainly we see telematics devices being critical going forward as we move into an environment where there's going to be such a
0: kind of a dichotomy between people that don't drive and people that do drive presumably there have been much lower accidents and fewer burglaries of vehicles. Certainly, if I talk
3: about the month of April, that was obviously stage five lockdown. There was a significant reduction in accidents. Theft, Funny enough, for the first week or two, there was just about no thefts. And then you could see it started picking up again. And it, it moved from diff- different types of thefts and crime changes when when people aren't on the road. But unfortunately, there was still theft for the month of April, just more towards the back end of the month
0: just explain that it changes when you aren't on the road people look at different opportunities
3: people even the shopping centers were being followed home because that's where people were going so there were less kind of thefts of just normal people driving around there was a lot more in the in the suburbs less in this kind of the the cbd areas where people weren't as active we saw quite a lot of theft this is non-motor theft i'm talking about you know between the, the hours of six and nine in the morning there was a spark of theft because that's when people were on the road And some of it quite petty theft, but theft nevertheless. There were different types of uh, activities happening because of the lockdown.
0: Is there anything you can advise people to protect themselves against this new behavior of the criminals?
3: I think people mustn't drop their guard. Some people mustn't think that there's no theft happening right now so they can be relaxed. They don't have to put the alarm on and you don't have to lock your doors. Unfortunately, crime is still there. Be careful when you're walking on the roads or exercising not to have anything you know, electronic visible phones and things like that you know obviously if it's it's very visible it's it's going to be a target and unfortunately we've seen a number of, of those kind of incidents happening right across South Africa and people need to be very careful about
0: that. You mentioned across South Africa have the patterns been much different in the cities like Johannesburg to perhaps more rural areas? No, we haven't really seen that. We've seen it
3: pretty much consistent across the board, particularly during lockdown level five. You know, there was an element of driving happening everywhere as there were people that were essential services workers. But I think people were, were pretty well behaved and dropped down quite quickly. In fact, we compared it to, to other countries around the world. We work with a company based in Boston that has businesses, you know, has customers in about 20 different countries around the world. They immediately picked up South Africa was one of the most observant when it came to lockdown. They could see it in the immediate drop with our driving data.
0: So you have taken steps to
3: share. Yeah, so it it fits directly into our shared value model, exactly as you said. So we did it for the month of April where we were able to give effectively a, a discount to every single customer. As we announced earlier today, we'll be extending it right throughout the lockdown phases where we'll be basing the discount that people will get on their motor insurance premium based on the mileage that they do. So obviously, the critical thing is, you know, are you driving less than you're driving before or, or not? Because there's some people that will be driving the same or very similar distances because they're going back to work. They live in Pretoria, work in Johannesburg or vice versa, and their mileage won't dramatically change and therefore their risk won't dramatically change. But then there'll be other people that will be working a lot from home and have realized that actually you can work from home. And, you know, during COVID, it's it's safer to be at home. So they'll, they'll stay at home for many months, who knows, even into next year potentially. So we decided to use the telematics data that we uniquely have through Vitality Drive and effectively give people a 25% discount if they drive less than 250 kilometers in a month. So if they do really low mileage, they'll get 25% back on their motor insurance premium, 15% if they drive between 250 and 500 kilometers in a month. So it caters for a, a large number of people that will be doing exactly that working from home. It gets paid as a cashback to clients. So they effectively, they pay the normal premium and then they get the money back in their bank account. As soon as the month's over and we can, we can obviously use the data that we have to then process a cashback, we'll then process a cashback. And I think importantly, it's in addition to the cashback that we already give customers for driving well. So it means that customers kind of will get value. If you drive a lot of kilometers and you drive well, you'll get your cashback in the normal way. And many clients are getting 30 or 40 percent of their premium back through that. And if they're not and they're driving only a small amount of kilometers, they'll get this discount, which we're calling the dynamic distance cashback, as well as the normal fuel cashback, which will be a smaller amount because obviously you're not using much fuel.
0: If you have a look into the future, though, and we believe or we've been told that COVID-19 is going to be with us until at least the middle of next year, how long will the discounts apply for?
3: So we've said we'll continue to apply these discounts for every single month, effectively until lockdown ends. If, no, if Lockdown level one is normal driving patterns. It will, it will probably fall away at that point. But if we see a dramatic reduction in driving thereafter, we'll evaluate it and see if it continues. But certainly if, if this lockdown period continues until December 2021, our customers will continue to get a 15 and 25 percent discount if they're the ones that are driving lower distance. And we've also said that it will apply as well up to December 2020. So just to give people some kind of certainty that this isn't a benefit that's going to fall away in a month or two or whatever, it's at least going to be around for eight months.
0: Where did you get those percentages from, the 25 and the 15%? How were they calculated?
3: We take a total motor insurance premium and we break it down to the different components. So there's a component that's priced in for accident damage. There's a component that's priced in for theft damage, for storm damage, you know, those massive hail storms that we occasionally get from time to time. And those are claims that we're still going to be susceptible to because many cars are parked outside and we're still going to get hail claims even if people aren't driving a lot. They'll still be going to the shops and back. Then there's obviously a component that's made up of operational costs, so we administer, obviously, the portfolios of motor insurance. We pay financial advisors for, for looking after their customers. And we left with a portion that's effectively for accidents. And then we're able to effectively try, estimate. I mean, it's not a perfect science because we're now moving into quite an uncertain future. We know what level five lockdown looks like. We don't know what level four, three, two, and one looks like. We, we really don't know. So, So we do our best estimations in terms of working out what that's going to look like. We also have to take into account a lot of unknowns. So we have a rand that's sitting at, I think it's about 18 rand at the moment, but we're likely to see that feeding itself into higher motor insurance claims as well, because a high portion of motor claims result in a repair, which is using a a part that's effectively imported or paint that's imported. So we have to take that into account as well. And we need to make sure that we obviously can remain financially viable and ensure that we can meet all our clients needs and, and claims going forward. So all that is, is, you know, is brought into account through quite a complex actuarial process and predictive process that then results in the 15 to 25% cashback percentages that we, that we can offer. And what about new business?
0: Are you able to write it at the moment?
3: Um, yes, we actually are writing a fair bit of new business at the moment. Um, so, you know, short term insurance is one of those lines of business that um, can be done over the phone. And um, I know many of our financial advisors have taken to Zoom and Skype and, you know, technology they wouldn't have thought about using before. And now they, they're conducting all their business using that. So they're having face-to-face meetings with clients. In fact, someone told me the other day that they've written business in some part of the country where they never would have otherwise have gone to. Too far away, too difficult. It was a relatively, you know, low low premium policy, but they're able to do it over a Zoom call. They're now expanding their scope of their work right across the country. So advisors are working, uh, they're writing business. We're doing less business than we did before the lockdown, obviously, but not too far off that. And every single day it seems to be picking up. So I think it will go back to normal levels relatively soon. I think people are, are looking at what options are available to them, you know, particularly if they're not driving long distance and they want to see if there's, if there's money they can be saving on their insurance. And I think this offer will be attractive to people. So I think we, we will continue to grow our business. And as I mentioned earlier in our launch, we, we've grown 15% over the last year, around about 15 to 20% every single year sort of on average since we, we launched our business nine years ago. And we don't see it slowing down at this point in time. So where is your market share now? Uh, we're about a 6% market share. We estimate about a six to 67% market share somewhere around there and in the personal line space. We are smaller in the commercial space because we only launched recently. But we're starting to grow nicely as well with small commercial clients looking for the same things, looking for cheaper insurance premiums for their vehicles for their fleets of vehicles, data to be able to monitor how their fleets are performing. So we're starting to pick up a nice market share in the in the small and medium-sized commercial space.
0: People hearing this thinking well they can get a 25% lower premium from Discovery Insure because of the lower distances that they are likely to be driving as they're working from home. But surely you need something inside their vehicle to monitor the mileage. Can you still do that during lockdown? Can you still install those?
3: Yes, we can. So the devices we use effectively are stolen vehicle recovery devices. They're allowed to be installed in this, in this market. They're part of the service of insurance and they a critical component as well in order to keep people safer because of the tracking, you know, the need for tracking. So um, we offer two solutions. We offer either a traditional tracking device, which is installed in a vehicle and a technician is able to install that. They are fully equipped with all the PPE equipment that's required to ensure that they are safe and the client is safe. But in addition to that, clients can also use our smartphone solution. We effectively download a smartphone app and effectively all they need to do is install a, a device on their windscreen, which they can do themselves. So we're starting to actually have a high demand of sending those via courier to clients. So it's no different to any other online purchase that someone gets. You'll get it via courier, you'll install it, you'll link it to your phone, and immediately we can start monitoring your distance and then start giving you the rewards. And these rewards I spoke about are immediate. to apply for the month of May as well. So there are a few different solutions that clients can get so that they can immediately start taking advantage of the discounts
0: available. The windscreen solution sounds quite a lot better than the old fashioned box that you have to put somewhere in your engine.
3: Things have moved quite a lot in the world of telematics. You know, when we started nine years ago, there only was that deep install box and, you know, and it still has value because it's a hidden tracking device in your car. The windscreen device doesn't, it doesn't work as a tracking device because obviously it's, it's very visible and it will be taken off the car immediately if stolen. So, so that doesn't work for that purpose and it's, it's got to be linked to the phone. We have a third solution as well, which we call crowd search. Which is another device which also can be installed very, you know, quite easily and effectively. It's a much simpler process. Also it takes five or ten minutes. Doesn't involve any wiring, you know, to cut into the vehicle's wires or anything like that. And that's hidden, so it's not on the windscreen. It's actually hidden somewhere around the car and can be used through a network that we've put together to effectively locate a stolen car. So that's kind of our next evolution of of stolen vehicle recovery technology. It's cheaper, it's easier to install, it's less invasive for a customer, and that's available as well um, through this this time, through the lockdown time.
0: How many vehicles do you recover?
3: Probably the stats are around about 60 to 70% of vehicles are recovered. So quite a lot. Either recovered immediately or recovered at a later stage. This other technology I spoke about is quite interesting. So we sometimes recover it weeks later after it's been stolen, and sometimes you recover it with the person who stole the car or bought the stolen car driving the car, which is great as well. It allows us to, to help stop uh, vehicle theft from taking place going forward.
4: Inside COVID-19, from Biz News.
2: A lot has been written of how the world of work, especially for office journeys, is going to change after COVID-19 or at least until a vaccine is rolled out all over the world. Does it spell the end of the open office? And with so many people working quite effectively from home, What does it mean for commercial real estate in cities, not only in New York and London, but also in Santon and Cape Town? A commercial real estate specialist in the U.S., Lisa Nee, told Bloomberg's Lisa Abramovich and Paul Sweeney that the COVID-19 pandemic could bring some permanent changes, including a bigger demand for urban office space.
5: So when you examine and compare the loss of jobs from the office-using sectors, to some of the other sectors, the office sector, professional service firms, finance, government, high tech, they're seeing uh, fewer job losses than any other sector. But how is that really gonna correlate, as you mentioned before, to the need for commercial office space? There's still always gonna be a need for this office space, but here's the big question that you mentioned, the tension really is forming between the need for space for social distancing, which is gonna demand more space per worker, versus the economic pressure of working from home. So as an example, when I started in the industry 25 years ago, the workforce model was three or three and a half people per thousand square feet versus right before the pandemic, it was six people per thousand square feet. So that really is gonna be the dynamic of whether you're gonna encourage your office workers to work from home or you're gonna reconfigure spaces to give people that ability for social distancing. And so that's really the question, and and communicating, it's also going to depend on the type of office um, job that the people are using within those buildings. So there's also going to be a pushback a little bit on the densification. So we're going to see co-working space really change the way that it's been doing in in the past. The reworks, they're all going to be rethinking their models, where it probably is going to become more of a managed service, And so now maybe the landlords are going to get in direct contact with those people that were using the co-working space and be able to create spaces for them directly with more managed amenities. So as I mentioned before, a lot of that's going to depend on the tenant and the location. And what we've really seen, which is even more interesting, is that the office space outside of urban cities are in really high demand. It's really, really hard to find. So these commercial real estate tenants are rethinking going into an elevator on the 30th floor, right? And so now those suburban markets with maybe three stories have seen a lot, a lot of activity. And so that new norm for office is really that tricky question of, of how, that, how it's going to be balanced going forward the shift away from densely populated urban areas, because this is something a lot of people are wondering about, especially given the high valuations of commercial real estate in the big urban centers. Is that all dead in the water now? So people are still going to be in the urban cities and want to work. Those those high tech jobs, the professional services firms, you know, they're still going to be in the in the larger cities those gateway cities um, are still going to call a demand for that. And so I think it's just a rethinking and a repositioning of how you're using the space rather than people just flooding and, and uh, evacuating, so to speak, those densification markets. It's just figuring out how to get that tension To be where people are going to feel comfortable going back into that space
4: how do you think the floor plans are going to evolve
3: is is the open floor plan where everybody's just kind of sitting with little to no barriers is that a thing of the past here until maybe we get a vaccine or something different
5: I, i think it has to be right i think that people are going to have to feel comfortable and safe in their work environment so whether they're going in on shifts if there is some hoteling um where it's an a or a b day um, but people are going to have to feel that they're secure and, and it's clean. And so that model of either putting up barriers um, or some sort of protection, uh, I, we even had some conversations with people about antiseptic finishes, non-touch access to things within the office, things where people really are really going to have to feel that their space is their own space and they're going to feel comfortable um, and safe going back in, into the workforce. Um, and, and even in the urban cities, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've been sp- speaking a little bit about, you know, people on the subways and, and getting back into the city. But once they're there getting in that elevator, they need to feel that they are safe and secure.
6: Inside COVID-19
0: from Biz News. is with the Eurasia Group.
7: We are a U.S.-based political risk advisory firm, our clients are roughly 50-50 big multinational corporations on the one hand, and on the other hand, um, investors, asset managers, uh, south side banks, hedge funds, a mix of direct investors and portfolio investors all around the world. A large chunk, US and Europe, but also Asia, Latin America, and a few South African uh, clients, and, and a growing Client base in South Africa
0: I'd love to get your views on the lockdown and, And I'll do this in the context of Scientists more and more saying The lockdown has served its purpose It should be lifted immediately But from a political perspective Is where it's all going to be decided And that's why I've asked if you could Just unpack for us your views
7: Ramaphosa did a very good job At the beginning of the outbreak His response was World class Consultative Brought everybody into the fold, built support across the political spectrum from a variety of stakeholders, and the, the rationale behind the lockdown was to buy the state time to improve healthcare capacity and overall readiness for the peak of infections that was to be expected long after the lockdown would have happened. Then this risk-adjusted approach was introduced. And there it seems to have been more the the non-medical ministers, as it were, the non-scientific ministers, as it were, who were putting together a a phased approach for for easing the lockdown in the economy. Now we see a collision of the science on the one hand and the heavy-handed regulations on the other. And Norma seems to have painted himself in a corner with us he has acknowledged it, I think, in his, his recent statements, inviting an interrogation of, of the plan. But in reality, he's got a lot of political support from within the ANC for this plan. I don't see him easily changing it. But at the same time, it's a very difficult plan to quantify, meaning the the quantifiable criteria for easing the lockdown on the provincial, metro and, and district level is, is going to be very hard once infections start rising, or if infections start rising, they may not, although in all likelihood they will. This is where a, a qualitative assessment of lockdown levels is looking most likely, and where we think it, it's not only going to create a lot of uncertainty um, amongst businesses, but also open the government to litigation and, and other kinds of um, legal wranglings to uh, further complicate the situation, to create more uncertainty. The best thing at this stage would be to change the plan, to make it less rigorous, to make it more flexible, but because of the dynamics within the agency, we don't see Ramaphosa doing that. Even though it is likely that most of the country will move to level three by the end of the month, we see many of the major urban centers returning to level four, possibly even to level five through the course of June and July if infections go up, and also if the, if they don't change the, the criteria, which we are not expecting them to.
0: Darius, how are your international clients, in other words, the global investors who might be investing in South Africa or who are already invested in South Africa reading this?
7: Our corporate clients with operations in the country are very concerned uh, it's making overall business planning very difficult. They are finding they have access to government, but their concerns are not necessarily heeded. But the portfolio investors who are taking a more uh, nuanced view, they, they are looking at the external environments as well, whether it's a risk on or a risk off international market environments also determines their decision making. They are very concerned about the overall economic trajectory of the country. They are very concerned about what the budget deficit is going to look like, how the deficit is going to be funded. And there the, the key question is, not um if South Africa goes to the IMF for a um, conditional lending program, but when, and yeah, we are not talking about the the four billion dollars that the government uh, as it said is going to borrow to fund uh, part of the fiscal package it 's when there's really a need of eight billion dollars or more, and um, it 's just too expensive to to get that from from capital markets and and that's a situation which is looking more and more likely perhaps not this financial year um, for for the state's financial year uh, more likely next year this lockdown is directly increasing those chances because it's really making the fiscal trajectory looking even worse than expected
0: we know that Ramapoza is well nuanced in business and also that he has connections around the world he would presumably be aware of this Is the fact that he hasn't removed the lockdown, despite all the scientific and economic evidence, uh, telling us something about the internal political dynamics of his position and within the ANC?
7: Very much so. I think Ramforza is doing the best he can do under the political circumstances. But the the political circumstances within the ANC, the, the reality within the ANC at the moment, is that for him to stay in power He needs to have as broad a base of support within the party as possible. He doesn't really bring a large party constituency of his own to the table, meaning he doesn't have a very large province or other party structure behind him. And so we've seen him not taking on errant ministers. And you see this with a police minister, for example. He's not calling the police minister to order. Even somebody who's more of an ally of his, like um, the Minister of Trade and Industry and Economic Development. We are seeing Minister Patel continuing with blatantly reckless uh, regulations for weeks before Ramaphosa reigns him in. We see this with Mbalula as well. And so Ramaphosa certainly isn't wanting to antagonize members of his cabinet. I think he realizes things are going to get tough and he hopes that by having a unified cabinet behind him, it will help him rather than having a divided cabinet. The internal dynamics within the ANC have taken a back seat for the past few weeks. We can still safely assume that ANC leaders who are likely to be prosecuted as part of the the overall anti-corruption campaign um, by the National Prosecuting Authority uh, remain committed in their resolve to remove Ramaphosa as leader of the ANC as soon as possible. This is very likely the Secretary General of the party, Ays Makhshule, this is former President Jacob Zuma, and uh, the whole cohort of usual suspects As it were, but what can they actually do? Um, That is much more focused on the national general council of the party, which is the first and best opportunity to uh, weaken Ramaphosa politically. And with that having been postponed indefinitely, I think that group, who uh, I'm now calling, thanks to uh, reading so many fairy tales under lockdown to my toddler, I'm calling them the the trolls under the bridge. From uh, three billy goats gruff Because um, We might not be seeing that much of them But they are very much there So uh, I, I see them Sticking their heads out From under the bridge More and more over the coming weeks As this political capital that Ramaphosa Had built up um, Starts to wane uh, You've seen this with the, the Zooming with the Zoomers podcast. You see this in some very nuanced statements from the Secretary-General's office or from the Deputy Secretary-General's office. And so the game is still very much on. The question is, when is that NGC going to happen? You've got a, a convergence of some of the things that I've been talking about. So the, the NGC will be an opportunity for Ramaphosa's opponents to remove him. The need to go to the IMF for conditional lending or to force domestic investors to bail out the government through prescribed assets will in all likelihood become very acute yet towards the end of the third quarter beginning of the fourth quarter this year meaning we might not necessarily have to have access to those funds at that time but we'll have to start talking about it i think the uh, the medium-term budget policy statement in october is going to paint a very very dire picture of the country's borrowing needs. So you see all of that happening at the same time. And I think Ramaphosa senses that. So for now, he needs to keep as much of the ANC behind him as he can, build up as much reserve of political capital as he can within the party. And that means tolerating ministers who are prone to to strong-arm tactics. It means tolerating the left wing of the party. And it does impact his reform agenda. Uh, I think at the moment, the finance minister is the lone reformer left in cabinet who who can act out on his reformist orientation. I think the president personally shares a lot of those reformist objectives, but the political reality precludes him from doing that. The central bank governor is also uh, a key uh, reformer, and hopefully we, we see a role for him after the Reserve Bank in government leadership. But overall, there really aren't that many reformers uh, in cabinet. And so Ramaphosa has to play to that internal audience, give ministers a lot of leeway. The ANC loves being at the center of a problem it thinks it can fix. And so the, the party loves this lockdown strategy. It puts it at the center of everything. It gives it a lot of power. And so that's worked out well for Ramaphosa. But uh, over the next few months, um, more and more stresses and strains and cracks will start to appear. Inside COVID 19,
6: News.
2: As the world science community is trying to find treatments and vaccines for COVID 19, cures that have been available for many years are being tested to see if it could stop the unrelenting pace of the pandemic. One of them is hydroxychloroquine. President Donald Trump started promoting the use of hydroxychloroquine in March and said in a tweet that used in combination with the antibiotic azithromycin that it could be one of the biggest game changers in the history of medicine. SpaceX founder Elon Musk appears to be supporting Trump's belief in the drug and he has taken to Twitter to share an online study on the supposed effectiveness of chloroquine as a coronavirus treatment. But some health officials, including the World Health Organization, have warned that taking it, especially outside a hospital environment, could be dangerous. And the Food and Drug Administration in the U.S. has warned that it could lead to heart problems. There is also doubt on whether it is effective as a treatment for COVID-19. President Trump caused gasps among food industry executives that he was addressing at the White House when he revealed... He was taking hydroxychloroquine. And a lot of good things have come out
4: about the hydroxy. A lot of good things have come out. And you'd be surprised at how many people are taking it, especially the frontline workers, before you catch it. The frontline workers, many, many are taking it. I happen to be taking it. I happen to be taking it.
0: Hydroxychloroquine? I'm taking it, hydroxychloroquine.
4: When? Right now, yeah. A couple of weeks ago, I started taking it. Because I think it's good. I've heard a lot of good stories. And if it's not good, I'll tell you right. I'm not going to get hurt by it. It's been around for 40 years for malaria, for lupus, for other things. I take it. Frontline workers take it. A lot of doctors take it. I take it. I hope to not be able to take it soon because, you know, I hope they come up with some answer. But I think people should be allowed to. I got a letter from a doctor the other day from Westchester, New York, around the area. He didn't want anything. He just said, sir, I have hundreds of patients, and I give them hydroxychloroquine. I give them the ZPAC, which is zithromycin, and I give them zinc. And out of the hundreds of patients, many hundreds, over 300 patients, I've, I haven't lost one. He said, please keep pressing that, sir. The White House, did the White House doctor recommend that you take that? Is that why you're yeah, taking Yeah, White House doctor. I didn't recommend. No, I asked him, what do you think? He said, well, if you'd like it. I said, yeah, I'd like it. I'd like to take it. A lot of people are taking it. A lot of frontline workers are taking hydroxychloroquine. A lot of front. I don't take it because, hey, people said, oh, maybe he owns the company. No, I don't know the company. You know what? I want the people of this nation to feel good. I don't want them being sick. And there's a very good chance that this has an impact, especially early on. But you look at frontline workers, you look at doctors and nurses, a lot of them are taking it as a preventative. And they're taking, totally unrelated, but they take the ZPAC or the Zithromycin for possible infection. Now, I haven't taken that other than an original dose, because all you need, you don't have to take it simultaneously. But the zinc you do take, So I'm taking the two, the zinc and the hydroxy. And it seems to have an impact. And maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But if it doesn't, you're not going to get sick or die. This is a a, uh, pill that's been used for a long time, for 30, 40 years on the malaria and on lupus, too, and even on arthritis, I guess, from what I understand. So it's been heavily tested in terms of... uh, I was just waiting to see your eyes light up when I said this, but, you know, when I announced this. But, yeah, I've taken it for about a week and a half now, and uh, I'm still here. Inside COVID-19, from business. News.
2: The Massachusetts biotech company Moderna announced promising early results for its COVID-19 vaccine that has been trialed in humans. The company's stock sold, but Bloomberg correspondent Max Nissen says companies that develop vaccines are not going to make money out of it in the near term. Nissen told Bloomberg's Lisa Abramovich and Paul Sweeney that it is early days for a vaccine and it would be some time before it can be rolled out to billions of people.
6: Moderna especially is is getting a big chunk of money from the U.S. government and and with that comes expectations, you know, that pricing will be moderate, that availability will be broad And, and I think that that genuinely is going to crimp um, any profit that's available. On the other hand, if you actually successfully develop a COVID-19 vaccine, you will end up making some degree of money. You'll at least recoup your investment probably more. And on top of that, you know, if it's Moderna, you can't imagine a better validation of, of the company's technology if it was able to turn around a vaccine this rapidly. But I, I don't think there'll they'll be... Uh, able to price at, at sort of the profit maximizing level, it'll be somewhere closer to cost and, and a little bit on top of that, I would, I would imagine. Whenever a vaccine is uh, approved, are we going to need billions of doses for everyone on the planet? Or
3: what's the thinking there? Because if it is something along those lines, it sounds like you need multiple companies to get into the manufacturing and distribution game.
6: You absolutely are going to need multiple companies and in all likelihood multiple vaccines just because of the bottlenecks of manufacturing at such a broad level. You don't have to vaccinate everybody on the planet. You need to get at a level that that makes uh, community transmission highly unlikely. That's somewhere in the 60 to 70 percent range. We're not exactly sure, um, you know, because this is a novel virus. But that still equates to billions of doses. So, yes, you will need multiple different manufacturers of multiple different companies, multiple different vaccines. Some require a cold chain to be refrigerated the whole time. That's tough in sub-Saharan Africa. So you may also need a more stable, a more shelf stable vaccine. It's a lot of different things that factor into this. So the more the merrier in terms of manufacturing and, and number of vaccines.
5: Max, can you put into perspective the success of this early phase trial? In other words, how much faith we can really place in this, uh, indicating that the vaccine will be effective in preventing sickness?
6: The really key word here is early, and, and I'm going to repeat it again, early. Really small study that was designed mostly to focus on safety. Now, now, the fact that there's immunogenicity and, and that there's an, there appears to be an antibody response, that's definitely positive. But that antibody data is from eight patients. The, the bar that it's being measured against is uh, equivalent or greater than the antibodies you see in recovered patients. We don't know if that's actually protective and for how long that's protective. So I just want to emphasize that it's a really long way before we can have any certainty that that this vaccine or any vaccine produces a durable immune response on a population level, um, and then beyond that, you, you always have to look at at safety issues, which which can emerge when you when you test in a much broader population. And at the highest dose, uh, the, the second of two doses of this vaccine, um, three people did did have flu-like symptoms. So there is the potential for that negative immune response, and we'll have to watch that closely. So there really is no substitute for running really big phase three trials, and there is still a significant failure risk, despite the fact that you have um, these nice early little pieces of data.
3: What are the other potential vaccines that seem to be farthest along out there? Who else should we be listening to?
6: I mean, there are dozens, but there, uh, in terms of what's in human trials, um, another mRNA vaccine from Pfizer, um, Johnson & Johnson moving rapidly on on a viral vector vaccine, um, than multiple candidates in China, uh, a couple of which are, are sort of what I would describe as relative to Moderna, um, kind of older approaches. Um, so on one hand, they, they might have a harder time creating a really robust immune response. On the other hand, we understand them better than this messenger RNA vaccine, which uh, again, it's worth emphasizing, has has never been used in a large approved vaccine in humans. So um, you, you really do have to as much as it's nice to focus on this one kind of early, you know, first mover, at least first report on of interim data, um, you do want to develop a number of different candidates because the relative benefits and risks will only emerge when you run those much larger trials.
0: This has been Episode 36 of Inside COVID-19. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio.